0: Well, if you have your Bibles, I invite you to turn to the Gospel of Luke, and we're going to be looking primarily at one section in this Gospel, this good news to us, Luke chapter 23, so you can turn to that chapter. But as you're turning to Luke chapter 23, I want to look at the beginning of this book, Luke chapter 1, and in it, Luke announces why he he wrote it. and Really, it is the reason we've entitled our series, The Truth About Jesus, is that is. God called out Luke, who was a medical doctor, to record uh, what had happened uh, as Jesus came on the scene. He writes out his purpose in writing this gospel when he says this in Luke chapter 1, verses 3 and 4. It says, It seemed fitting for me, as well, having investigated everything carefully from the beginning, to write out for you in consecutive order, most excellent Theophilus, so that you may know the exact truth about the things you have been taught. Which means he had heard about Jesus, he had heard probably uh, things that were true and things that were not true. He said, I, as you've gone to truth, truth sources, I want to give you another truth source, the gospel uh, that I have been called to write so that you might really understand the truth about Jesus. Because what we don't want to come to a place like this or to any source of information to find out that which is false, right? And so the whole goal is to find out the truth about Jesus. And a little bit, again, as you think about the people that God called to give us this book, the Bible, is that we need to understand it was both a, a human uh, endeavor as well as a divine endeavor. It was both from uh, man's hand as well as God's heart. And with that, God used that uniquely. He used the personality and the skills of those who were going to write down what He had called them to write. And, and He allowed allow them to, to do resourcing uh, as Luke says he investigated the truth about that. But it's like God was the master editor. And what he did, he made sure that some of those scribal errors they might have had, some of the things they didn't quite get it right, that he would make sure that they would correct that before it was put down in final written form. And so you see those who give us the message, it, they were historians. In other words, they were writing history, which is really, as we think about God's divine footprint uh, is his story. Uh, but not only were they historians, but they were writers, and so they had their own personality involved in, in putting it in a way that, that uh, was, was part of who they were. But what I want to add to that is they were also apologists. Now, apologists, when we think about it, is people are making apologies. And really, apologists are really people who are defenders, defenders of the faith. They were giving reasons for what they were writing or believing in ought to be believed by those who are reading and hearing about it. And so as we look at this book, at the truth about Jesus, not only is he telling us the truth about Jesus, he's telling us why we ought to believe that this is true about Jesus. So this morning, what we're going to be looking at is really what has gone down for 2,000 years, is that... As people hear the message of Jesus, uh, really Jesus is on trial. He, is what I'm hearing, is there a predominance of evidence to believe that which is true about what people are saying? And, and every time we share about what we believe in. And if you're not at that place, I hope you come to that place where you realize this is true. It's not wishful thinking. It's not just a story written for religious type people, but this is, this is actual history. This is actually what's happened and continues to happen as God's handiwork continues through his power and influence in this world. It, it, is that you have reasons to believe. And anytime you've been to a trial, how many of you have ever been in a trial situation? You were on a jury um, maybe you are being convicted of a heinous crime, you know, whatever it might be, is that, uh, you know, if, if you get in a trial situation, people are put, you know, uh, you know on, on, on a, a platform to determine what, what is true or not true. And so this morning, we're going to see Jesus on trial, literally. But what I want you to do as we are in this Advent season, and as we're in that period of, of the life of Jesus where it's, where it's about the cross, and what happened on the cross? Is there evidence to believe this is true, that Jesus uniquely is the one who was crucified? Now, when I say uniquely, as many people were crucified by the Roman Empire. But what makes it different about Jesus? It's, it's not how they did it, but who they did it to. And, and, and we're convinced that Jesus is, is the one who was God and is God, and he, he became a man. And he came... For us to be rescued from that which is wrong about us. And, and that's what's interesting about you know, coming to a place like this on a Sunday or any other time. You're, you're with God's people and studying God's word or, or trying to follow the, the plan that God has for you. It, it's always an admission that there's something wrong with you. Because if something's not wrong in you, then you don't need to be here. Because Jesus comes to not only save us from our sin, but rescue from our sinful behavior so that we live the, the life that he's called us to live. And so we're, we're always on journey to live out what he wants to put into our lives through his son. And, and so Jesus is, has been on trial, is on trial, and, and we want to be convinced people to say, hey, I, I believe what is true about Jesus. So let's look at it this morning. Luke chapter 23, and what we have here is is what happened right after what happened right before what is going to happen here. And if you remember, what we looked at last week is that that Jesus, right after he had been in the Garden of Gethsemane, he had prayed fervently and passionately that it was all possible from God the Father that they could accomplish what they wanted to do together could be done in a different way. And it wasn't, I think, so much that he was fearful about the physical pain that we often uh, focus on in terms of him being on the cross, but what was going to happen as a result of that, that when he died, in ways that we can't fully, completely understand, is that he would be separated from God the Father and God the Spirit. And, and so Jesus would become sin in our behalf. And so if there's any way where he did not have to take on our guilt, then he would, he would go down a different path, but this was the only way that our sins could be atoned for. To be paid for. And and what led up to this is as he had prayed that, and his closest companions had had fallen asleep, they they couldn't continue in prayer for him and for what they were going to face, which was temptation and trial, and they didn't do too well because they hadn't been involved in praying to be prepared for what was going to happen next. Is that Jesus was betrayed. And as he was betrayed, he wasn't, um, he was betrayed by Judas, but Judas brought a few friends with him because he had seen the power of Jesus. And so the, as, as this crowd of people, and it, it describes it in the Gospels, they, were, they came with swords and clubs for this little peasant preacher uh, that be looked at from a, just a normal perspective that had uh, people around him that weren't known as fighters and, and military types. And they were a small band there. There was probably 11 plus Jesus of 12 and as you look at the numbers that, that were there, they, they called the Roman cohort, which could have as many as 600 soldiers, probably not all 600 needed to become at that point, but let's say they brought 100 or 200. You had a group from the Sanhedrin, which could be as many as 70 people. You had chief priests and, and Pharisees, so how many that came to show up on that, 20 or 30 or 40 of that, and then you had some other officers. There could have been up to two or three or 400 people that came to get Jesus. And as they show up, you know, he, gets, he gets designated as the one they're after because he's betrayed by a kiss, and, and then there's a conversation. Are you Jesus of Nazareth? And he says, I am, which is the, could add a double meaning here because he took the, the phrase I am, which is the covenant name of God in the Old Testament when God announced to Moses, who, who, who's sending you? It's I am, Yahweh. And it's interesting what happens, and this is found in the Gospel of Matthew, I believe, is what happens when when he says that, this two or three hundred strong, they fall back and they fall to the ground. Just a, a phrase out of the mouth of Jesus, they are struck with the power, the one that they're trying to arrest. And I think this is one of the reasons why all of a sudden the disciples go, whoa, hey, we're with Jesus right now. Maybe we can take him. You know, it's 12 against 400, but you know, and there, some of them are professionals, but maybe we can do it because you're here. And so they ask the question, uh, sh- shall we draw the sword and fight? And they don't wait for Jesus' to answer. We talked about that last week. And, and, they, and Peter takes the sword and he, he aims for someone's head, Malchus, and misses and hit his, hits his ear. And Jesus says, oh, <laughs> "Those who live by the sword will what? Die by the sword." Jesus did not come to coerce or force people into the kingdom of God. He He invites everyone to come. and And, and so, these who all of a sudden were filled with courage because they're in the presence of Jesus' disciples, he he rebukes them and said, "Put down the sword." And he grows, and he goes willingly with them to the trials. And if you count them, were six trials. That were to pronounce guilt upon this one, that we find out really was sinless. In fact, if we had been reading and listening, we already knew that because no one could point a finger at Jesus and convict him of anything. So this morning, what I want to do—I going to make just a—you know—in case you're wondering, why it's, it's already late. How, how much time he's going to spend in this text? Okay, uh, I'm, I've got just very three simple truths this morning, and, and, and really from a particular purpose of of say. Why should we believe the truth about Jesus being the Son of God, the Messiah, the promised one to rescue us from our sins? It's all based on just who he is. And you could also say what he's not. And we'll, we'll try to see that very simply this morning. So if you have your outline, follow with me as I, as I try to uh, pull this together uh, this morning. Who, who is this Jesus that's on trial? Beginning with Matthew chapter. Luke chapter 23, and we'll look at the first five verses and then make a very simple observation. Then the whole body of them got up and brought him before Pilate. Uh, they had already taken him to the Caiaphas, and he'd already given his verdict, and, and this is the basic of the second trial here. And, and they began to accuse him, this is Jesus, saying, we found this man misleading our nation and forbidding to pay taxes to Caesar and saying that he himself is Christ, a king. Now, they're saying it to the, the Roman um, prefect, the one who is literally in charge of Israel in terms of, of the power over it. And, and they, they try to convince him that, that he, ought to, he ought to punish this, this, this man, uh, as they just saw him, Jesus. And their first things are saying, then, well, you know, he, uh, he misleads our nation. And for, for Pi, he could care less. <laughs> I don't care if he's, he's preaching things you don't like. That doesn't mean anything to me. And, and then he says he, he forbids us to pay taxes to Caesar. Now, that would have concerned him a little bit, but probably he, he was looking at the taxes he was getting. and saying, well, it doesn't seem like our coffers are any less filled with the coins of, of the shekels that people have. And so he, he didn't seem to be overly aroused by that. And maybe he'd even heard what Jesus had said about paying taxes. Uh, render to Caesar what is to Caesars, right? Well, I, I, you know, I've heard that. It doesn't sound to me like he's teaching what you're saying he's teaching. In fact, he's even paid taxes. Did it kind of creatively. He was able to pull some coins out of a fish, but as long as we get our money, that's fine with me. But then he, then they hear the phrase, well, uh, he also calls him the Christ, with the promised one, the anointed one, a king. And, and that seemed to bother him a little bit, at least to the point where he decided, I think I'll go down that 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 discussion a little bit. So Pilate asked him, this is Jesus saying, are you the king of the Jews? And he, this is Jesus now, answered him and said, it is as you say. And if you want a longer um, rendering of this, look at the Gospel of John and there's a kind of a back and forth type conversation between Jesus and Pilate. He asked him, uh, now is this your question or is that somebody else's question? And they go on and on and on a little bit. Uh, but in verse 4, it says, And then Pilate said to the chief priests and the crowds, I find what? No guilt in this man. And again, I, we're just going to make some simple observations out of the text. And often, it's so powerful statements out of God's word by just what does God's word say before you have to even look at what it means? What is Pilate, who, who really could care less about Jesus in so many different ways, he says, You know, if I, as I interview this person, you put before me. I find nothing. I find nothing wrong in his life. Or to put it this way, that who is this Jesus? Jesus is not guilty. I, I'm. During my younger days, one of the things I, I did is I I taught a Sunday school in a juvenile hall for just Sundays on end, just every Sunday before it was before our church. Where I, was, I belonged to met, and so uh, you know every every Sunday I was speaking to to young people that um, had gone down the wrong path, and, and you know what I found in in, in conversing with most of them. Um, and I, actually, I didn't have an, a, anyone contradict this, but I didn't talk to everyone personally. Um, talked to everyone, but not not personally or interviewed them. It, it was interesting. Every one of them in that particular establishment thought they were not guilty. <laughs> so, someone had, you know, mistakenly got them in that place of where they were now being held, uh, and their freedom was restricted. But the, the difference here is it, it, wasn't, it wasn't the establishment that said, um, as in the case of those who were in that juvenile hall, which I pre- try to present as passionate as I could, that they could be set free on the inside. The outside Would come later, but on the inside they could be set free, which is so much more important than being free on the outside but in bondage on the inside. Is that Jesus, by the judge, was pronounced not guilty? Pilate said, not guilty. And just continuing on this particular text, he said, Then Pilate said the chief priest, not guilty, but, this, but they kept on insisting, saying he stirs up the people, teaching all over Judea, starting from Galilee, even as far as this place. And so they, they realized that, that Pilate initially did not want to back them up. But, but as you look at Pilate, he, he not only said it when he initially saw Jesus, but he kept on saying it. Look at verse 14 in Luke chapter 23. Pilate summoned the chief priests and the rulers and the people, verse 14, and said to them, you brought this man to me. This is after he sends him to Herod. We're going to look at Herod in a moment. You brought this man to me as one who incites the people to rebellion. And behold, having examined him before you, I found no guilt in this man regarding the charges which you make against him. And so you think of of even the people who didn't really believe in Jesus, and Pilate did not believe in Jesus, but as they investigated his life, he said, there, there's nothing I find him at fault about. He is not guilty. And then in verse 22, the, the same statement. And he said to them the third time, "Why? what evil has this man done? I have found in him no guilt, demanding death. Therefore, I will punish him and release him. And he tried to appease. and said, look, I don't find any reason to do anything to him. But just so, you know, you get something i'll I'll punish him i'll torture him. We find in a moment that he's he sent to to king herod and, and and let's just look at how Herod responded to the nature and character of Jesus in verse fifteen in luke chapter twenty three we have this commentary this is probably speaking again, but he said. Verse 15, nor, after he said he found him, no, No, nor has Herod, for he sent him back to us, and behold, nothing deserving death has been done by him. And so as you look at those who who really were the witnesses or the ones who were going to make some of the verdicts, they they said there's there's really, there's nothing to hold him into account for that which you've said he's committed. But this is not the only group that really said Jesus was guilty, look at the, the thief on the cross. Look at Luke chapter 23, verses 39 through 43. One of the criminals, in some texts it one of the thieves who were hanged there, this is the, the three crosses, were hurling abuse at him, saying, Are you not the Christ? Save yourself and us. But the other answered and rebuking him, said, Do you not even fear God, since you are under the same sentence of condemnation? And, and we indeed are suffering justly, for we are receiving what we deserve for our deeds. But this man has done nothing wrong. Now, obviously all of these could be mistaken in terms of their judgment of Jesus, but it gives an indication that those who had no reason to try to present a doctrine about this religious man, they came to the conclusion that he was without sin. Even a Roman centurion look at Luke chapter 23, verse 47. Now, when the centurion saw what had happened, He began praising God saying, certainly this man was innocent. You know, as you look at Jesus, and we have to come to that place in our life where we're convinced what is true about Jesus. Is he truly the one who has come to save us from our sin? Let's make it personal, my sin. The only way he has the credentials to do that is that he is someone who is without sin. And you see those who were there, they had come to that conclusion. We're going to go to the communion table in just a few moments. So as we see that Jesus is not guilty, not guilty of sin, what is he? He is the bearer of our sin. In Second Corinthians 5, verse 21, a great verse to memorize. He made him who knew no sin, this is Jesus, to become sin on our behalf that we might become the righteousness of God in him. So the message is clear about what the Bible says about Jesus. And even when he was physically on trial, those who were there said about Jesus, this is a man who is without sin. But let's not be mistaken. Why Jesus came, he, he was sinless, but he became sin on our behalf that we could be right with God. No one is right with God through their own efforts. Jesus had to come to bear our sin. In 1 Peter 3.18, it says that the one who was just became unjust on our behalf. In Colossians chapter two and 14 it says this, that, that he is the one who come and he canceled the certificate of debt that was against us. And, and, and we need to realize that, that, in fact, there's a big debate about what's the best way to translate in English, you know, the, the Lord's Prayer. Uh, forgive us our trespasses as, he forgives, you know, as we forgive those who have trespassed against us. And some people, some translations say, forgive us our debts as those who, were in, who we've indebted to others. Really, really the idea here is that, that we, because of our sin, have a debt that has to be paid. And the only way that could be paid is someone qualified enough to be sinless on our behalf. But moving on in this trial, this trial particularly before Pilate, not only did we find that Jesus is not guilty, but Jesus is not defensive. And I struggle as I, was put, as I was putting some points to hang this, this passage on. is uh, Defensive, why would you throw that in? You know, what, what does it mean to be defensive? When we, have you ever had someone call you when you're kind of pleading your case? Well, quit being so defensive. Come on, raise your hand. Okay, is... Um, I can sometimes be quick to be defensive because, I, one, I always like to be right, and so I have to convince people that I am right, and so I, you know, I want to respond that way. But you know, you think, why, why am I be def- being defensive at times the way that, that term is used? Because I, I want people to like me, right? I want people to think that uh, I, I know what I'm doing or I know what I'm not doing. And so I, I'm quick to, to somehow plead my case. But you're going to find that Jesus wasn't that that way. It doesn't mean that he never defended himself because he, he defends himself a little bit before Pilate. But he doesn't do it before Herod. And, and, and we need to realize in Scripture there's a place to be defend that what you are about or what you're doing is true and right. But, if, but we should never try to be defensive from the standpoint is that we somehow got to make people like us or make people feel good about us because you're not going to be able to control people's feelings. And what Jesus did here, there were times where he would not defend himself against people who who did not want to hear. In reality, one one of the ways to determine whether you ought to defend yourself, if the person you're trying to defend yourself doesn't want to listen to what your defense is, then don't waste your time and don't waste their time. And we see Jesus seen into the heart of a man. And this is the other side of the gospel. There comes a place in people's lives where they've said no to God, repeatedly, and really there's now no hope for them. It's really the kind of New Testament example, the Old Testament example of of Pharaoh. There came a point in Pharaoh's life where he had hardened his heart so many times. There was no hope for him. And, And the Bible does talk about that we ought to be very fearful for our life, if that is where we're at, or people we care about, where they're at, that they don't get to that point where their heart is so hardened that God gives them up. And, and we're going to look at it real quickly, <laughs> at, at the life of someone who decided that, that he could care less about what God really thought because he even had John the Baptist's head taken off because of a, the whim of his wife and his daughter. And as you think about this, is, is there comes a place in our life where our hearts can be so hardened we cannot hear from God anymore. And, and really you see that Jesus at that point does not try to even speak the word to them. He doesn't defend because there's no reason to defend with someone who doesn't want to hear the defense? Look at Luke chapter 23, verses 6 through 12. Now, Herod was very glad when he saw Jesus, for he had wanted to see him for a long time because he had been hearing about him and was hoping to see some sign be formed by him. It was almost like, hey, I, I've heard that, that, that Jesus is a pretty good magician. <laughs> he, can, he can pull things, you know, he can pull rabbits out of hats, he can, he can, he can, he can do some things that mystify people. Maybe he's just a great magician. Maybe he can do some kind of a miracle in front of me. And he questioned him at some length, but he answered him nothing. And the chief priests and the scribes were staying there, accusing him vehemently and, and trying to provoke him, basically what they were doing. And Herod, with his soldiers, after treating him with contempt and mocking him, dressed him in a gorgeous robe and sent him back to Pilate. Now Herod and Pilate became friends with one another that very day, for before they had been enemies with each other. And they became friends that they had come to the same conclusion. But what happened with Herod is that that Jesus said, I, I, I'm not going to speak a word. I, I'm not going to defend my case. Because your mind is already made up, and you could care less about the true facts of who I am and what I've done. Verse 9, then he questioned him with many words, but he answered him nothing. But I want to realize, but I do want to share to you, when, when, does, when does Jesus become the defender? Because we need to understand that he did not defend himself, particularly before Herod. But Jesus is the lawyer for our defense. What do we need a defense for? If you're a follower of Jesus, the Bible says that you need to recognize that when you become a child of God, God settles the penalty for your sin. But that doesn't mean the sin in your life has been eliminated. You still will struggle with sin. He gives you the power over sin, but you still struggle with sin. In 1 John chapter 1, verse 8 it says, if we say we have no sin, we make ourselves out to be a liar and we're deceiving ourselves and the truth is not in us. So somehow if you've come here today and you think, you, know, you got your act together because you've been a Christian for whatever length of time, realizing that you might be farther along than you used to be, but you still have a long ways to go until Jesus returns. And so we still have sin we need to deal with. And in 1 John chapter 2, we're not going to turn these passages because of time, it, it, it says, uh, I want you to understand that, that Jesus is our advocate. And he's come to be our advocate because of our sin. Well, what is Jesus, why does Jesus need to be our advocate? Because the Bible says in Revelation chapter 12, 10, that we have an enemy who is constantly accusing us day by day before God because of our sin. And... and let me, let me ask you, since if, if, if you 're a Christ follower this morning, if, have you ever have you ever come to that place where you, you feel that some of the sins you keep repeating maybe disqualifies you from knowing Jesus? Have you ever come to that place where if you describe your relationship with God you 're filled more with guilt than, than the joy that you 've been forgiven and, and where does that come from? Because we, 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 we in many ways have accepted the truth at realizing that because we are a Christian, we're not sinless, but we ought to sin less, but sometimes we don't think we sin less enough. You understand what I'm saying? And and you need to realize that that our identity is found in Christ and not our own performance. And and what Jesus does, every time we feel that we're unworthy of Jesus, we need to realize He pleads our case before God the Father like in a heavenly on-trial picture. Is that the reason this person measures up to be part of my family is because of what I have done for him and for her. In Romans chapter 8, verse 1, it says, There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. I heard a phrase a long time ago that really made sense to me. When you mess up, and I think we've tried to establish we all mess up. And when you mess up, you will be convicted of your mess. And if you're not, then something's wrong with you. If you're not more sensitive to sin after you become a Christian, then probably something's wrong there. You ought, your alarm ought to go off when you've done something that displeases God by hurting other people, by going down the wrong path. And so we ought to be convicted, feel guilty about our sin. But if we feel condemned, that doesn't come from God. That comes from the evil one. When you feel convicted, that comes from the Spirit of God. When you feel condemned, that comes from the enemy, Satan. Does that make sense? Because there's therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. So if you've settled your relationship with Jesus, do not feel condemned. You are not condemned. When something goes wrong, feel convicted and confess it and move on. So, who is Jesus? He's the one who is not guilty. Secondly, he is the one who is not defensive, but he is a defense for our sin. And then, thirdly, real quickly, Jesus is not to be ignored. Let me just read the last account and make a very simple observation. Pilate summoned the chief priests, this is verse 13, and the rulers and the people, and said to them, you brought this man to me, and we've read this, but I want to read it again, as one who incites the people to rebellion, and behold, having examined him before you, I have found no guilt in this man regarding the charges which you make against him. No, nor has Herod, for he sent him back to you, and behold, nothing deserving death has been done by him. Therefore, I will punish him and release him. Now he was obliged to release to them at the feast one prisoner. But they cried out all together, saying, Away with this man, and release for us Barabbas. Interesting enough, Barabbas, his name means son of the father, which is kind of a play on words there, because Jesus truly was the son of the eternal father. And we heard that in the passage today. He was one who had been thrown into prison for an insurrection made in the city and for murder. Pilate, wanting to release Jesus, addressed them again, but they kept on calling out, saying, Crucify him, crucify him. And he said to them the third time, Why? What evil has this man done? I have found him no guilt, demanding death. Therefore, I will punish him and release him. But they were insistent with, with loud voices, asking that he be crucified. And their voices began to prevail. And here's the verse that I want to just pick out as the observation point. And Pilate pronounced sentence that their demand be granted. And then what resulted, and he released the man, Barabbas, that they were asking for, who had been thrown in prison for insurrection and murder, but he delivered Jesus to their will. Going back to verse 24, and Pilate pronounced sentence that their demand be granted. You know, if you look at Pilate, Pilate kind of describes how we are and people we know are, often as it relates to Jesus. And where we were, if not where we are now. And, and as we hear about Jesus, and we're, 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 kind of, uh, we're kind of struck by this man named Jesus who claimed to be God. We, as we hear the miracles, about the miracles, we hear about the prophecies that were fulfilled, as we hear about the, the empty tomb, the resurrection, as we, as we hear about what he taught and how he lived, and, and we're struck with if there is anyone we ought to commit our life to, uh, this would be the one we ought to commit our life to. But on the other hand, they're saying, well, you know, but I, I don't want to become some kind of religious crazy person. I, 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 and I kind of like maybe a little bit how my life is right now. It's not perfect, but, you know, I don't know what's going to happen if I, if I, if I buy into all this stuff. And, and, and quite frankly, I, I like calling my own shots. I like doing what I want to do whenever I want to do it. And I, I, I don't know. I, I can see. I mean, that's a pretty good package. You know, believe in me and I'll... I'll I'll come into your life right now and, and change that which is wrong in your life and, and point you on the right path, and in it you get, you get heaven too. But on the other hand, if I, if I get into this, my, my life is going to change, and I'm now having to follow a whole other direction that my life is going to because basically my life's been all about self, and now I have to turn to, to God? And, and so what, what happens is, I'll, well, maybe I'll just kind of put off that decision. I, I'll just think about it a little bit more. And basically what people do is they, they, they sit on the fence. Uh, often people say, well, I, I don't hate Jesus. I'm, I'm not against Jesus. I, uh, you know, I have nothing against Jesus, but are you his follower? No, I'm not quite there yet. And, and there is a place where people need to consider and count the costs and, 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 and make a decision that they're really going to be all in on. But the reality is you're going to be like Pilate. Now, Pilate was faced with it during the trial about Jesus. But eventually, every one of us who have heard about Jesus being on trial, let's be honest, if it's, this is true, we're going to be on trial. Isn't that, isn't that a, a reality? If, if what is true about Jesus is true, when this life is over, we're going to face Almighty God who's going to be our judge and he's going to look at your life and he's going to say, well, yeah, you, yeah you. <laughs> all of you admitted that your life wasn't perfect. You messed up. Well, how, how did you solve that? Well, I, sometimes I tried to be a little bit better. Well, yeah, I know, but, you, but you're still guilty because these sins haven't been dealt with. The, the price hasn't been paid. You, you didn't turn to the pardon that was offered to you by the living Christ. And so the point is very simple, is that as you look about Jesus, he's the one that's not guilty, he's the one that's not defensive, he doesn't doesn't try to coerce people into believing, he he wants to be the defense lawyer for us who have embraced him, and and realize that we're not condemned, we get convicted, but we're not condemned, and, but he wants us to realize for everyone, he cannot be ignored. If Pilate could have stayed on the fence, he would have just not made a verdict on Jesus, but he had to decide, am I going to follow what the people are haranguing me about, and please, the the religious folk in Israel at the moment? Or I mean hold on to what, what I believe is true about Jesus, but he chose the wrong path. And eventually everyone is going to be on trial and they're after decide do you believe or do you not believe? Or to put it away, I put it in your notes this morning are you going to accept him or reject him? John 1 11, 12 says this but he came to his own, this is Jesus, and his own did not receive him. But as many as received him, to them he gave the right to become children of God, even to those who believe in his name. And here, there's kind of a synonym here. What does it mean to believe is to accept Jesus. To willfully invite him into your heart and say, "I, I want you to be the leader and the forgiver of my life. You are to be my Lord and my God. I'm choosing you and not what the world has to offer. And the reason I'm doing it because I'm convinced that Jesus is who he claimed to be. He was guiltless. He didn't have to be defensive. And he cannot be ignored. Eternity rests on what we do with Jesus. Let's pray together. Well, I just really pray as, as we consider this that we... We might settle again in our own hearts and lives, where, where do we stand with Jesus because of what we believe about Jesus? And Father, help us to be just filled with passion to, to reach out to others and just be inviters and those who tell the story about who Jesus is. Father, if anyone doesn't know you this morning, might they just simply open up their hearts and lives, say, Jesus, I want to know you. forgiving me of my sins. I want to follow you with my life. As we now prepare to have a time with communion, as we just come to the table and bring it back to where we sit, might we remember what it's all about. Jesus' body was put on that cross for us, his blood was shed for us, so that we might experience forgiveness and life in him. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.